I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. apologetics and uh, really my goal is to just help Christians understand why they believe what they believe and how to defend it and I try to do that the best I can I really really enjoy discussions um, and this is actually my first kind of formal debate with a uh, with a formal format so I'm kind of excited about that and uh, I'm married I've got three kids and I'm 37 years old if that matters <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. All right, Chris, if you can, do a quick introduction to yourself. Sure thing. Uh, my name is Chris. Most people probably know me as Cyrus the Skeptic. I have a YouTube channel, about 24,000 subscribers over there. Um, that's what I do full time. Uh, on there, I do a combination of politics, social issues, uh, counter apologetics, sometimes just bringing people on and not engaging in counter apologetics. I've hammered out where we come on for more uh, standard discussion. Uh, recently, if any of you are familiar with James from Modern Day Debate, uh, he has a particular version of Pascal's wager that he likes to use. We had him come on to discuss, um, which was really interesting. A lot of people enjoyed that episode. Um, so yeah, pretty much what I'm all for is discussions and helping people figure out why they believe what they believe. I don't have any particular uh, goal as far as like converting or deconverting anybody, as long as the reasons that they have for believing what they believe are justified, then I'm fine with that, as long as they're not causing any harm. Okay, I appreciate both of you introducing yourselves. Um, so the format for this debate is going to be, we're going to go into opening statements and we're going to have about a 60-minute discussion. Um, no 60-minute discussion is going to be three, you guys are going to get three opportunities each to go ahead and ask questions for 10 minutes. Um, I'll be the moderator of that time. So whenever you get, when, whenever that time is expired, I will conclude it wherever you're at in your, in your statement. I'm going to conclude the time, then the next person will get that 10 minutes. So with that said, um, I believe, uh, Eli, you're arguing the affirmative. So with the affirmative has to go first uh, in formal debates. So Eli, you are up first with your opening statement. 
All right. Well, um, I'd like to thank Marlon. Thank you for having me on your show. And I really enjoy and appreciate what you're doing. I think this is uh, great to have the context for people to discuss uh, competing ideas and things like that within uh, respectful con uh, context. I think that's very important. And I'd also like to thank Chris for being willing to be here to interact with me a bit. I look forward to an engaging conversation. And uh, I have to admit, I don't know much about Chris. Uh, so I'm looking forward to listening to what he has to say. And uh, so there we go. So thank you for, for being here as well. So with that said, let me go right into my opening statement. First, um, I'd like to define the terms of this debate as I see it. Does God exist? And for me as a Christian theist, I deny the existence of any other God other than the Christian one. And so I'm going to be defending specifically Christian theism today, where I do not believe that any non-Christian conception of God is rationally coherent and not without detrimental philosophical problems once the details of these competing deities and or worldviews are fleshed out. And I do not find the non-Christian worldview systems to be rationally defensible as I find them unable to provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. And by way of kind of a quick summation, um, I do not find non-Christian worldview systems to be defensible in that they either have internal inconsistency problems or if we grant their hypothetical truth, such systems can be shown to undermine human reason and experience. Now, to the nature of the debate, as, as I understand it, um, we need to be very careful uh, since when we're engaging in debates over the question of God's existence, there is all too often the naive assumption that we can proceed in a tit-for-tat back-and-forth discussion over individual pieces of data, facts, or evidence. When in reality, uh, this debate is not an issue of facts absent of a worldview context. The debate between the Christian and the skeptic, or the Christian in any other form of the non-Christian position, is really a debate over worldview systems. And so if my opponent desires to discuss any particular point, I will politely remind him that any particular point of contention will only and can only have meaning and coherency within a broader worldview context. I do not believe that we can discuss any particular fact in some sort of neutral worldview independent fashion. And since my worldview foundation is in diametric opposition to any non-Christian foundation, I'm going to take issue with the interpretation of any particular point of contention taken on its own. For since we both will be operating from different worldview perspectives, different paradigms, if you will, it becomes foundational to this debate as to which position has um, a worldview context out of which the intelligibility and coherency of any fact is possible. So in quick summary, this debate is not over evidence per se, although I believe that my position has both evidence and a worldview context in which something like evidence even makes sense. But rather, our debate is one over competing worldviews. We're debating competing systems of thought, and I having a Christian worldview and Chris having a non-Christian worldview. Now, there may be a temptation from the skeptical perspective to suggest that since they're taking the negative position, that there is therefore no requirement to put forth a defense, but rather the task is merely to evaluate the validity of the Christian's position. I'd like to point out that while I am happy to um, uh, admit that I am taking the, uh, the positive position, I'm making the positive assertion that the Christian God exists, I would also point out that every non-Christian perspective has explicit or implicit positive assertions of the falsehood of the Christian worldview. For instance, if the skeptic's position is to suggest that they do not know if the Christian God exists, this itself is implying the Christian worldview is false, since an important assertion of the Christian worldview is that in a very profound sense, all men know that God exists. Now the skeptic is free to reject this idea of all men knowing God in some sense, which I would imagine Chris would want to reject. I don't think he believes that. But by rejecting this Christian proposition, he is saying, in essence, that the Christian worldview is false. And if this is his position, then we will need to engage in some intellectual sparring over worldviews. Or again, if the skeptic wants to take the tact of discussing particular facts that are neutral 
or he wants to take the tack that it is even possible or even appropriate to come to these issues in a neutral fashion, he again would be implying the falsehood of the Christian worldview, which teaches that there is in fact no neutrality. For on the Christian worldview, every fact has its meaning in the ultimate definer of fact, which is God himself. So every fact is what it is because God has created these facts to be what they are. And hence, if someone defines a fact that is contrary to how God has sovereignly defined that fact, then I would argue that the person redefining that fact contrary to God's definition is wrong and does not understand that fact truly. So in essence, my point here is that no fact is neutral. The nature of this debate is not over piecemeal issues, but rather over worldview systems, which themselves give particular facts their meaning. But the question then becomes whose worldview can provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience? For this, I now turn to the nature of my particular argumentation. So as I have elucidated thus far, the nature of this debate is that of worldview against worldview, principle against principle, system against system. Having competing systems or worldview perspectives, are we relegated to a standstill, unable to push the debate any further since whatever fact the skeptic brings, I'm gonna interpret in light of my worldview and every fact that I bring, he's gonna interpret in light of his. Well, I don't think that this is the situation that we're just at an immovable standstill. I think we can break this apparent standstill by demonstrating the truth of one's perspective transcendentally. So the nature of my argument for God's existence is transcendental in nature. For those who may be listening, what do I mean when I speak of transcendental arguments? Well, when we speak of transcendental arguments, we are in essence asking, what are the preconditions? That is to say, what must be the case in order for something else to be the case? An easier way to understand this would be something to the effect like I'm standing on the floor in my house. You know, I'm standing in my living room, for instance. What are the preconditions for my being able to stand up in my living room? Well, among other things, the beams upon which my house is built need to be under the floor holding everything up. If the beams aren't there, then I wouldn't be standing. But here I am standing up. So the beams need to be there. So uh, that's just a simple example to kind of get the idea. Transcendental argumentation asks what must be the case in order for something else to be the case. If we use the examples of the laws of logic, you need to understand that transcendentals are proven by the impossibility of the contrary. So suppose someone rejected the laws of logic. The transcendental necessity of the laws of logic are clearly seen in that even in denying them, one needs to presuppose them in order to deny them. In other words, the transcendental necessity of the laws of logic are demonstrated by the impossibility of the contrary. Deny them and you demonstrate their existence in your very denial since your denial necessarily presupposes them. In like fashion, my argument is this, that the proof of the existence of the God of Christianity is that if he didn't exist, one could not prove anything at all. If one denies the Christian theistic worldview, I would argue that such a denial would reduce the non-Christian's perspective to absurdity. Now again, the temptation will be to suggest that my argument is merely an assertion, but to think such fails to recognize the nature of my argument and the nature of transcendental arguments in general. Remember, the transcendental argument for God's existence is an argument. And it is my job in this debate to make good on my argument, and I'm going to try my best to do so. So what is required of my opponent today? If my argument is that the proof for the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it were not true, one could not prove anything at all, what my opponent must do is to lay out his own worldview and demonstrate that given the truth of his own worldview outlook, he can save knowledge, science, logic, meaningful history, rationality, induction, and in essence, intelligibility. Hence, given the very nature of my argumentation, Chris is not relegated to merely stating his lack of belief, if that's his position. Again, I will let him speak for himself, and only responding to why he thinks my view is insufficient. The very nature of my argument requires the responder to show his hand and lay out his own perspective, his worldview, and engage system versus system. 
In essence, what ground is Chris standing on? What is his worldview foundation? And is that foundation coherent and consistent? And does it provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience? What is his worldview? What does he believe about the nature of reality? What does he believe about how knowledge is gained? What does he believe about how we should live our lives? And is what he believes about these things consistent with each other? What becomes especially interesting is what is his epistemology? How will he address these issues? He could go the rationalist route. Everything that's true must be coherent, but how does he avoid the traditional problems with rationalism? He can go the empirical route uh, through sense, knowledge comes through sense perception and experience, but how does he answer the issues that are inherent within empiricism? Or he can combine the two and go the way of Kant, but then that perspective, I would argue, has its own problems. Again, I don't want to speak for Chris, so we're going to wait and see uh, what he has to say and from there engage in uh, worldview interaction. But for now, I think this is sufficient to lay out the issues at hand. And so for now, I concede my time. All right. Thank you, Eli, for your opening statement. I appreciate you for that. Uh, Chris, it is now your turn for a 10-minute opening. Sure thing. Um, so my positions, I'm going to go ahead and lay them out now because they're going to come up in conversation later anyway. Uh, my personal epistemology is that of pragmatism, um, which in a, in a very brief sense uh, argues that what is useful uh, is ultimately what we end up working with. Um, as a result, if we're looking at science, pragmatism would argue that for the purposes of science, we would use instrumentalism, uh, which is the view that concepts and theories are uh, useful instruments and progress of science cannot be couched in terms of concepts and theories uh, somehow mirroring reality. Uh, they have to work on an instrumental basis and are used for the purposes for the amount of time that they are required there. Um, when it comes to things like metaphysics, um, some pragmatists like John, uh, like John Dewey were empirical thinkers. Um, so it really depends on what you get there. On where pragmatism has issues is that it is sometimes, uh, what's the best word for it? Uh, sometimes it works against itself. Um, but also pragmatism was literally built on three people not agreeing with each other about what pragmatism is. So I would argue that sometimes those inconsistencies are inherent to the inner bakings of pragmatism. And I don't see a problem with that. As long as it gets the job done and it's useful, that's what it's there for. Uh, that said, moving on to uh, my position on God. So if we're talking philosophical, uh, philosophically speaking, uh, then I have to label myself an agnostic. I don't have a choice. If we're talking colloquially, uh, then I'm perfectly fine labeling myself an atheist under, say, the lack of belief position, anything like that. Um, but again, it depends on which uh, side of the coin we are arguing for, hard philosophical definitions, or if we are arguing for more colloquial or, as I would say, useful definitions. Um, whichever one you want to use, perfectly fine with me. I go on an atheist on my channel since that's common parlance. That's fine with me. My position on God being that it's basically agnostic is that I suspend belief on the proposition of God. Uh, this goes for all gods. However, that does not mean that I deny any particular God unless I find that that God has logical problems. I'm perfectly fine accepting the laws of logic because it is through laws like that, like the law of non-contradiction, uh, that I start to have issue with the way God is presented, at least in the uh, standard Christian worldview, insofar as the term standard Christian worldview even has a coherent meaning. Just as there is no atheist worldview, there is no agnostic worldview, I would argue that there are at least 40,000 Christian worldviews, and probably more, depending on how many individuals there are with worldviews based on Christianity. If there were one coherent Christian worldview, then we wouldn't have a series of no-true-Scotsman fallacies battling each other over the last 2,000 years. As far as God, the God of the Bible is denoted as a God of love. Before we can get into this conversation about what a God of love means, we have to figure out what type of love we're talking about, because the biblical version of God 
is going to argue that his version of love uh, would be what we would call agape love, which would be unconditional love uh, for anybody who's in, unfamiliar with the term agape. I would say that that is the type of love that is most coherent and most uh, often given to God. Uh, my problems with that, though, are that unconditional love uh, would denote certain things. Uh, for one, it would denote that people that he loves, he may not commit genocide against. I know that it's the common played out trope to go to the flood, but unfortunately it is in the Bible, so I'm going to have to go to it. It's hard for me to square the circle of a all-loving being that would actually commit genocide against all of his creatures, especially if this being uh, is all-knowing and all-powerful, which means that they not only... Uh, had other options available to them, being all-powerful, they also knew what these options were because they are all-knowing. And because they are omnibenevolent, they would be behooven to act on these other less cruel notions, and yet they didn't. So obviously one of these traits isn't there. Either they are not all-powerful and they had to choose one of the more violent routes, or they are not all-knowing and could not conceive of one of these less violent routes, or they are not all-loving, in which case the violent route may have even seemed to be uh, a beneficial one at that case, denoting some type of catharsis. Uh, alternatively, uh, there is also the problem of hell. Um, however, my particular issues of hell will always be uh, contingent on the type of hell that the Christian is asserting. As I do not know um, what Eli's version of hell is, I do not know if this is an annihilation concept or if this is more of a, hey, you're going to be burning forever, like the standard uh, Baptist teaching. I know that he's a Calvinist, um, but I do not know. I have not heard yet his particular variant of hell. So I cannot bring the hell argument in unless I know what his version of hell is. So I will go ahead and have to skip over that for the time being. Back to the type of love God has. God's love is best described as unconditional love, or agape. He is the embodiment of love and somehow created things like the global flood and hell. But again, I'm not going to bring up hell in detail because I do not want to speak for Eli's uh, view on hell without knowing what it is. However, this does lead us to some problems, at least as far as I'm concerned. If God created everything, which if we're to accept the Christian worldview and work within it, we would have to accept that he did create everything. Uh, there is no start without him being a first cause. We have to accept that he also created evil. This is supported by uh, the book of Isaiah. But if God is all-knowing, he would know that the result of any of his actions would lead to evil, either its creation or lead to him having to enact some type of evil. If he knew ahead of time that any of his actions would lead to evil, which if we grant that he's omniscient, we have to, uh, then any action that he takes that would lead to evil can be considered evil. I don't think consequentialism works as a moral framework for most people, because most people do not know what the end result of any of their actions will be. This is one of the reasons why in a court of law, for instance, uh, intent is only one part of an equation. That's how we determine motive sometimes. Uh, but a lot of times we will argue things based on what the consequences of actions were, as well as with the intent. With God, the intent is not part of the equation, only the consequences. And the reason for that is because God, regardless of intent, knows what the consequences are. He is in a privileged position to know the consequences of any and all actions, moral, other, moral or otherwise. So while most actions, any action from a human can be considered moral, immoral, or amoral, depending on your particular ethical framework, Yahweh's actions necessarily create evil, because consequentialism is the only way that we could really judge him, because he knows the consequences of his actions. Again, a privileged position unlike anyone else. For God to create anything, that thing must be within his nature. Well, we know that God can create evil. He's created things that necessarily led to evil, and he knew that, and he had the power, and I would assume with omniscience the creativity, to do otherwise, and actively chose not to. This means that creating evil is within God's nature. 
If creating evil is within God's nature, it must also then follow that evil is within God's nature. If evil is within God's nature, the idea that he's omnibenevolent must necessarily be discarded. This is a particular omni-trait that can no longer hold. The only way that I could find to escape this is to somehow judge God by a standard of morality that one does not know, either by arguing uh, out of the youth of road dilemma that all goodness stems from him, in which case, how can we even consider God good? Even, even something like divine command theory considers itself ethical subjectivism. Or we can argue that God is separate from good and that he adheres to good, in which case he's bound by it. Now, I recognize this is probably not Eli's position. Eli's position is more than likely going to be that that good necessarily stems from God, necess uh, necessitating that God would be above any of these laws. I would argue, then, that if this means that we can never judge the moral character of this being whatsoever, then how can we in how can we call him good? We can't call him evil, so we must necessarily not be able to call him good, as these two are polar opposites, and our ability to judge one will be contingent on our ability to judge the other. So if we are going to argue that God is above all moral, um, what's the word for it? If we're going to argue that God is above all uh, moral judgment and say that good necessarily stems from him and therefore he's above these judgments, then again, I will point out that this means that we cannot call him good. The omnibenevolent trait still has to be dropped off because there is no way for us to judge that particular trait. It's impossible at that point. Finally, if we imagine the life of a single person as an inch on a ruler, think of how many inches you have. Everybody's lifespan is, a, is an inch. Well, you have not an infinite, but a perceivably infinite amount of lifetimes there in which a series of evil actions can take place. However, God is eternal. And we would also think even regardless of what the particulars on a version of hell are, we would at least think that God knows that any punishment that he gives, should it be eternal, compared to this inch, if you, if you extend that life force of a person from the inch to, say, the square footage of your house, that's still nothing in comparison to eternity. Change the square footage of the house to the, to the circumference of the earth. This person is now living for thousands and thousands of years relative to the inch that we gave originally. This is still not eternity, though. Any punishment that God decides to enact on these people, and it would be him deciding to enact, again, he's bound by consequentialism at this point, would be considered evil. One of these traits has to go. One of the omni-traits has to leave. If the god is going to be described as a tri-omni-god, then one of these traits is going to have to be yeeted out the window. I'm perfectly fine with taking the uh, omnipotent out. I'm perfectly fine taking the omnibenevolent out. That's just me. If god is going to be described as a perfect tri-omni-god, there's the incoherence for me, and that's my time. All right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Eli, for those opening statements. All right, now we're transitioning to the core of the debate, the crossfire, the, the most exciting part of a debate. Um, so once again, the affirmative goes first. So we're going to allow Eli to question Chris for his first 10-minute uh, cross-examination. All right. You, you, you said a lot of good things. And I, what I first want to get out of the way is I appreciate it because most atheists or skeptics or whatever uh, don't usually uh, come out and share their views as clearly as you did. So I appreciate that. Um, so you said that God creates evil. What is your what is your view? What do you think Christians believe about the ontological nature of evil? The ontological nature of evil, that which mm -hmm. would be the opposite of good. Okay, does, uh, do you think on the Christian view evil has an ontological essence? 
in the Christian worldview, I'd say that good and evil both have ontological essence. Uh, my personal thought, though, this is just me speaking from my worldview. Obviously, mm -hmm. we're going to have to be doing a lot of that. Uh, my personal mm -hmm. thought is that good and evil are labels that we assign onto actions. And what we assign onto those actions a lot of times can be a matter of perspective. So if I see, for instance, um, if I see something like, say, a family member of mine is killed, I see that as evil. However, uh, from somebody mm -hmm. else's perspective, that might not be seen as evil. But that's never going to change the fact that, to me, this is going to be considered an evil action. Right. And so uh, while I'm, I'm, trying to I'm trying to ask these questions because I wanna, I'm trying to understand how you perceive what Christians believe about the ontological essence of evil. In other words, uh, to say that God creates evil, we do not believe that he actually creates this thing called evil. Mm -hmm. And evil is a, is, a, is a privation. And so uh, there's not something that God creates and it's called evil. Evil is something that is not in conformity with his nature. So and violates his law or whatever. So it's it's more of action that is in disconformity to to the standard uh, which is God. So it's not something that he actually creates out of his nature. So I would say that that your statement in regards to God creates anything that's consistent with his nature. God creates evil, therefore God is evil, or something to that effect. I would say that it doesn't follow since the Christian position we do not hold that there's this positive ontological essence of evil that God creates. Mm. That's what I, that's what I'm that's that's why I was asking the question. So you gave me uh, a view of what you think evil is, but that's not what the Christian position uh, holds to. So do you want to clarify okay. a little bit of what you think the Christian position is and maybe perhaps retract that as an argument or you can clarify and rephrase the argument? Sure. Um, so if I could, I know this is your time to question me, but there is one of these one of these sure. things that I would have to say necessarily uh, leads into it. Do you believe that God creates color? I'm sorry. Do you believe that God so, creates color? Well, again, I don't want to overstep the bounds. You could ask me when it's your turn. So I, I, I don't want to, because once we let the question go back and forth, then we'll kind of in, intermix and we'll defeat the whole purpose of cross-examination. So you could ask me that Fair question, and, and I'll try my best to answer that. All right. So then I, then um, I will then I will have I to say so that I'll have to side. At that point, I'd have to actually sidestep your question because my answer will necessitate your answer on that. So we'd have to move on to another question at that point. Okay. All right. So um, in regards to um, epistemology, you said you are a pragmatist, right? Yes. Do you believe in objective truth? Uh, I believe that the concept of objective truth can be useful. Do you believe that there as... is something? Do you believe that there is objective truth? Um, I have a definition of truth that that will work for you. Do you understand what I mean when I say objective truth? Perhaps you could clarify. Okay. Um, I think objective truth deals with something that is true independent of our personal opinions. Mm -hmm. So something is true independent of what we think about. And there's something out there that's objectively truth. Do you believe that there is objective truth? And do you believe that it's possible for someone to know that objective truth? So for somebody to know an objective truth, that actually would fit into my personal definition of truth. My definition of truth in general is... Mm -hmm. um, if something, well, hold on, best to say, my definition of truth is that which comports to reality. My definition of knowledge is a belief that comports with reality. If you believe, so if we have a Venn diagram, truth is on one side, belief is on another, where truth and belief collide is where knowledge is, at least in my personal worldview. If you believe something and it happens to be true, then you have knowledge. 
is there any way that someone could have access to what is actually the case so that they believe things that are true and that they can know them to be objectively true within your worldview um, perspective? Within my worldview perspective? Mm -hmm. Strangely enough, so within pragmatism, something being objectively true, as in something uh, something having ontological value, correct? Is that how you would define I, this? I would say that something to be objectively true, we are believing something. We have, uh, again, I would I would define truth as a justified, or knowledge as a justified true belief. Can we have beliefs that are true and we have justification for believing they're true and those reflect the uh, objective reality? So justified true belief, from what I understand, and correct me if mm -hmm. I'm wrong, but justified true belief basically takes the Venn diagram that I have where okay. believe things and true things are on one side, knowledge is in the middle, and it adds a third piece to the Venn diagram where there is a justified side. So anything that is justified and believed and true becomes knowledge. So can we have access to objective reality such that we know it on your perspective of pragmatism and epistemological view of pragmatism? I would agree that we don't actually have access to objective reality. Everything that we see, everything that we perceive is filtered. Okay, so if that's the case, then do, would you say that your worldview system lacks the preconditions for intelligibility? Since you know, every worldview would have to have some forms of truth or something to undergird uh, a foundation for knowledge. So intelligibility uh, just has to do with whether or not it is intelligible. I know that's a that's a bit of a tautology. Um, basically, if something <laughs> okay. can be, it's basically if something can be understood or is accessible or digestible. Um, under pragmatism, yes, because literally, if something is unintelligible or undigestible, then it's going to be discarded. That's what happens in pragmatism. If something cannot be understood uh, in its form, then it must be set up in a way and so that it can be understood while also still uh, being true. So for instance, if I were explaining um, a mathematical concept to somebody and my method uh, was unintelligible, then my method would need to be discarded and I would need to find a new method in order to teach the person. Okay, but when I say intelligibility, what, what is the preconditions for intelligibility? Well, logic has to be binding. We need to have uh, correct reasoning processes within a, an epistemological perspective that is pragmatic and that you don't, as you've admitted, have not, you don't have access to objective truth. How can mm -hmm. you hold those consistently within your worldview? That we need logic, these unchanging uh, universal standards, unless you want to define how you understand logic. How do you have those things which we must know objectively? but within a worldview in which we have no access to objective reality. It seems as though, on the one hand, you would say we have no access to it, but then to even have intelligibility, you have to presuppose it, since you have to presuppose the validity of logical laws so you've, and their, their unchangeable so you've just made two. So you've just made two separate statements, and I want, okay. I want to point this out to you because I don't, I, don't, I don't think you're a bad faith actor, so I'm 90% certain you didn't catch that you said this. <laughs> okay. But okay. you said... One has to presuppose that we can uh, ascertain, essentially, uh, the ontological truth of something, if we can ascertain if something is ontologically true. And then you said, but on the other hand, you argue whether or not something is in fact ontologically true. Here we have a warring of, of issues. On the one mm -hmm. hand, you're asking about personal perception. And on the other hand, you're asking about ontology. Personal perception is going to be a perception of ontology and a filtering of what is objectively true. As an example, I'll, I ha asked the question earlier, um, but I will, I will say it in a statement form instead because it is required for this. 
Um, mm -hmm. If you're familiar with the concept of is your green my green, this is a, a very common uh, concept for things like color theory. Um, mm -hmm. Is your green my green basically says, uh, if I'm looking at a an item and I perceive that it is a shade of green, is that item in fact green? Is the ontological nature of this item's color green? Well, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of things that go into that. For one, uh, my perception of it is that this object is green. If we just look at the perception of the shade, someone else's perception of that is going to be that it is a completely different shade of green. We can get ten people to disagree on what shade of green a particular leaf is. However, if we actually look at what goes into making a green leaf green, we find that the the only color that is absent in that leaf is green because the leaf itself is absorbing every color except the green. It's reflecting the green, and that's why we see that. So is this leaf actually green? Well, again, we come to, well, no, ontologically, it's not green. So does it have color? I guess it contains all colors. Well, no, it's actually containing wavelengths. This is the problem with ontology versus perception. My perception of this is being filtered through several different, uh, several different chasms in order to get to the point where I perceive this leaf as green. But ontologically, so that statement doesn't even make sense. Right. Right. So let me, let, me, let me interject that, there. So are you saying right there. that we cannot know objective reality, we only know perception? All right, I would Eli, say we can that, only that, know perception. That's, that's time, You're... fellas. That's time. Okay. All, All right. right. Thank you. All right, Chris, it is your turn to cross-examine uh, Eli for 10 minutes. Sure thing. Um, and I'm sorry if I if I ate up the last the last couple minutes there, Eli. That's okay. Um, that's okay. It was not my intent. Uh, that's why I was trying to ask that as a question beforehand. Uh, I'm sure, also sure. eating into my time now here, unfortunately. Um, okay. Okay. So one of the things that you pointed out is that under... Uh, we're having a conversation on worldviews, therefore we can't have a tit-for-tat discussion. Um, but if we can't have a tit-for-tat discussion, then what is the point of us even having a conversation at this point? I'm, well, and I'm not trying yeah. to be rude there, but... <laughs> no, it's not just a tit-for-tat discussion. What I said was a tit-for-tat discussion over specific things. In other words, what I'm focusing on is that the difference between you and I is not an issue of just merely, I have a fact that you don't, or, you know, we're arguing mm -hmm. for specific things. I just wanted to bring the point that when we're discussing these issues, it's system versus system, not independent, neutral facts. That's, that's what I meant by that. Okay. That's fair. Um, and then another point you brought up to, stemming from that, um, the debate isn't about facts, it's about worldview systems. If your opponent desires to discuss a particular point, that point can only work in reference to a worldview. So for instance, um, if I were to ask you uh, the nature of truth, you would embed that in God, correct? I would say that God is the source of all truth because creation reflects, you know, what his plan, his purpose, everything that is made is understood within that context. So things are true because God makes them true. Okay. So my question then becomes, um, one of the criticisms that you gave for, for, and it's one of the things that you noted that I, I didn't do. So I, I do thank you for mm -hmm. noting that, um, <laughs> is that there's a, there's a slippery nature, uh, where a lot of skeptics are concerned where they take the lack of belief position and then just say, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. And they won't actually right. give you, this is my worldview. This is how I came to it. These are my positive assertions against a particular type of God. They just hide behind. I'm not convinced. Do you see there as being any functional difference between that slippery nature and the nature of being able to hide behind, well, nothing's true without God, so therefore everything doesn't work without God? 
I think it's I think it's irrelevant. I'm not the nature of the, my argumentation is not that I'm hiding behind God. I actually think that the uh, the worldview of the Christian worldview actually is the preconditions. I'm not just saying God, you know, just answers the question, but it just so happens that from my perspective, mm. I think God does answer questions much better than the non-God position. So it's not an issue mm. of hiding behind it. I'm willing to tell you what my entire worldview is. You are willing to tell me what your worldview is. Many people don't because they don't want to defend a, a, a specific point, you know, in some cases. So um, I don't think it's relevant. Yeah, I don't have such a problem debate. with that. <laughs> Good. Well, good. Yeah. And I'm, I appreciate that. I really do. Um, so I have no problem uh, letting people know what I believe and then they could ask the questions and we can engage in internal worldview critique. So I'm not hiding behind something. Uh, and I do understand, as you probably would agree, there are some people who do hide their position so that they don't have to defend what they defend. It just so happens in this discussion, we're not doing that. <laughs> Fair enough. And I do appreciate the honesty there. Um, if there's one thing that I, I don't like, it is a uh, is a slippery interlocutor, as it were. Um, right. Not because it gets very hard to pin them down on things, but because it's very it's very difficult to actually have a discussion at that point. Um, right. Okay. So the next question I had is, you said that no fact is neutral. Under, under my worldview, facts are definitionally neutral. Um, it is how you use those facts. I guess this is because it's from a pragmatics perspective. Um, right. So for me, it's the usage of the facts that cause the facts to be either uh, for or against any particular position. But I view facts personally as neutral. Could you clarify the statement, facts are not neutral? Um, in other words, me and you will, un will understand the foundation of any fact in completely different ways, given the diametrical opposites of our worldview. Since God created everything mm. in my worldview, every fact is what it is because God created that fact to be what it is. And so you don't mm -hmm. hold to that. And so um, for me, there is no such thing as casting my worldview aside and then you casting your worldview aside and then just making sense out of this independent worldview, independent uh, piece of data. So I would deny the existence of brute facts. I don't think brute facts speak for themselves. I think facts only make sense within a worldview context. And so in that sense, so, I, I would say they're not neutral. We can't um, interpret a fact independent of an intellectual framework with which we use to interpret the fact. Okay, so you don't view brute facts as a thing that exist, exist in an abstract sense, mind you, not exist as in this has ontological Unint value. Uninterp much... Uninterpreted facts. Uninterpreted facts, okay. Uh, right. So do you accept, um, I, I'm fairly certain you do, but do you accept axioms then? Um, some axioms, yeah. Axioms are, uh, it depends, because I, uh, when you get into, I'm a presuppositionalist, when you get into presuppositionalism as an apologetic methodology, you have two branches uh, between Van, uh, Cornelius Van Til and Gordon Clark. And I think a key mm -hmm. distinction here is that Clark held uh, that the Bible is the word of God is his axiom. And he would define axiom as something that cannot be, justified um, by appealing to something external to itself. Anyone could pick any axiom, and so there's no justification for it. He just thought that if you pick an axiom, it needs to be able to coherently build your worldview. Whereas on my perspective, I don't take axioms in that fashion. As a matter of fact, I, I rarely use the term axiom. I would use, and I kind of just use this myself. I don't know if there's uh, actual technical terminology for this. I would say that I have an ultimate presupposition. Now, I think the faulty mm. thing about uh, how people understand presuppositions it, can you still hear me? I can still hear you just fine. Okay, because I lost uh, these AirPods. See, this ran out of battery, so I'm going to recharge this and switch between them. Um, just so you so, know, uh, these guys are only 20 bucks. Okay, so, th thank <laughs> so you very much. So if you wanted much. to get a replacement that doesn't have a battery. 
<laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, so I would take my foundation not as an axiom, but as an ultimate presupposition. And I think there's a fault in people's understanding of a presupposition, and that there's a common understanding that presuppositions are assumptions without justification. And I deny that. If someone were to say that a presupposition is an elementary assumption without justification, what they're doing is actually implicitly rejecting the reality of transcendental argumentation. Since transcendental argumentations try to justify presuppositions, not by appealing to something external to itself, by, but by appealing to its transcendental necessity. Kind of like that example okay. when I used um, logic. Deny it and you demonstrate it because logic must be um, it's, uh, something that's actual in order to deny it. It's a lot like when somebody says they're thinking. Okay. Cool. Excellent. Um, okay. So my my contention with that um, from – what's the best way to word this? From everything that I've studied uh, in philosophy, there is no functional difference to me between a presupposition and an axiom. Um, and an unquestionable presupposition, from what I understand, is simply an axiom. Because an axiom – all an axiom is is a truism. Uh, it is a a principle or a a dictum, uh, something that is regarded as regarded as being established, uh, accepted, or self evidently true. So, if you presuppose God, you are saying that God is self evidently true. He is justified in and of himself by simply being himself. Correct. Well, I would disagree with your understanding of the presupposition as seeing no functional difference between an ultimate presupposition and axiom. To say that there's just functionally no difference is to implicitly deny the validity of transcendental arguments. Because the very mm -hmm. fact that an ultimate presupposition, uh, my ultimate presupposition, and not just this presupposition of God, but say, for example, the assumption of logic, um, it is an ultimate starting point, but it, it is justified. It's just not justified in the same way some other presuppositions may be. So when uh, if you try to justify a presupposition, but an ultimate presupposition by a standard outside of itself, then that presupposition is no longer your ultimate standard. The ultimate standard is the thing by which you judge the validity of that prior presupposition. What you just cut out. I can't hear you anymore. It is justified by an appeal to its own transcendental necessity. That's that's the difference. Now, I'm not sure uh, how much you've studied okay, in this so area. I, I would have say one question. One question for Eli. Okay. Uh, okay. Regarding to the debate and not regarding to the debate at the same time. Um, can you send me, after this debate, uh, any reading that you have done uh, on the nature of axioms versus presuppositions so that I can read those? Because you're the first person that has tried to argue that axioms and presuppositions have any functional difference that I've seen. Wow. Okay. I mean, have you, have you ever studied the works of someone like Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson? Um, I have not, though I have several Calvinist friends who have. Uh, and I've had okay. the—I'm not sure if you're familiar with RCA— uh, for instance, reformed Christian apologist. Okay, I he's a uh, he's an apologetic he's an apologetic YouTuber uh, as okay. well. You guys yeah. actually because you guys are both Calvinists. You might I, get along. I, a lot of this of my study here is through audio and things like that, and some I wouldn't know which page, but I could give you resources where you can kind of see a presentation of a transcendental argument. Um, so you can kind of yeah, see. Yeah, if you what want to send doing. that to me, I'll gladly okay. digest sure. it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, do you want to? Continue that thirty seconds, Chris, or do you want to conclude? No, that with was that? that was my that was my thirty seconds. Okay, that was the research seconds. material for post debate. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, Eli, you got the second go for ten minutes. Okay, so we um, so it seems to be that you hold to uh, an epistemological perspective that seems to, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, 
have the same logical outcome of something along the lines of, of Immanuel Kant, so that we can't know the noumena, we can only know perception. Is that is that your view? That would be my view. Um, I, I don't think that we can understand what is ontologically true through our perception, uh, but we can get close enough to be able to, to function, and that's really all that we need to be able to do. Okay. All right. So if we can't know perception, we can't know reality. And so do you see why I would think that as an epistemology, you don't have the preconditions for intelligibility? Kant's, Kant's perspective, I would argue, is fallacious. You know, it's kind of like he commits what some have called the nothing but fallacy, right? It, uh, it's a fallacy because nothing but statements imply um, more than knowledge. Kant says he knows the data that gets to his brain is nothing but phenomena. But in order to know this, he would have to be able to see more than just the phenomena. In other words, in order to differentiate one thing from another thing, you have to be able to perceive where one ends and the other begins. So when he says we mm -hmm. can't know anything about reality, he's actually making a statement about reality that given his own principles, he couldn't know. And so uh, do you see the, the, the issue where you're saying we can't know reality, but you're in, in it's an, object, an objective sense, but you're actually... Mm -hmm making a claim that, well, we can only know perception. I think it's fairly demonstrable that we can only know perception. Uh, for instance, um, we have a perception of free will, um, which I know that as a Calvinist, you probably already have contentions with just on a, just on a basis of me uttering that. Um, but for instance, we have, we have a perception of free will. Um, however, from what we've understood from brain scans, most of our decision-making is done about six microseconds in the subconscious before we actually have a chance to make it is, in the is conscious. That the case? Is that the case That's, or is it, is that, is that the way we perceive it? Again, when you uh, say those things about studies, it presupposes that we have knowledge that those studies reflect something that is true. So again, again if we here's apply, the, here's the nature ahead, of sorry. pragmatism and how it helps here. So with pragmatism, so under pragmatism, okay. what we find, if what we find has usage, if what we find has utility, then that is as far as it goes. That is as far as it need go. What we understand about the human brain is that things happen in subconscious before they happen in the conscious, before you are perceptually aware, before you have perception of a decision that has been made, it has been made. Now, granted, for legal purposes, we still have to hold people culpable for their actions, regardless of any legal apologetic saying that, oh, well, the subconscious was in charge of that, not the conscious. Um, but there are, as an example, um, for pragmatism, when we were looking at something like science, I said in my opening statement uh, that pragmatism views science as a tool. It sees it through the lens of instrumentalism. As long as it is yielding results and it's yielding consistent results, then it maintains utility and then we continue using it, regardless of whether or not um, regardless of whether or not it can say anything about ontology in its purest form, which it one day might be able to. I don't know. I don't have that ability to, to but if I can, if I can, uh, perceive that. If I that. can cut in, um, it still mm -hmm. seems to me that on the pragmatic view, it's making knowledge claims that goes beyond what pragmatism allows for. I mean, uh, you know, on the one hand, you, you claim that we can't know anything about the real world because we, we use these things pragmatically. Well, on the other hand, asserting that we can know the real world is unknowable in that way or make any statement, well, perhaps we can know in the future. You're still making knowledge claims that even themselves are not objectively true necessarily. Because are they, are they knowledge claims or are they belief claims? Well, if you believe them, then what's the, why should anyone believe them to be true? On that worldview, you don't have mm -hmm. preconditions for knowledge because it seems as that on your worldview, you can't have knowledge. You're not, you're not concerned with 
true beliefs, you're concerned with what works. But then we could ask the question, is it objectively true that pragmatism seeks after what works? You still are stuck in uh, a need for objective truth, which your view does, seems to not allow. So there's two types of objective truth we're dealing with here. Um, you're talking about objective truth, about an, abs an abstract principle. So what, what pragmatism as an epistemology is concerned with is an abstract principle, because I cannot hold pragmatism in my hand in the same way that I cannot hold one in my hand, or I cannot hold purple in my hand. I can hold um, facsimiles of these concepts, but I cannot hold the actual thing in my hand. The ontologically true or false nature of a proposition is not the same thing as the ontologically true nature of, say, um, the exact chemical makeup of my desk, for instance. That's something okay. that even if I were to be able to break down, down to the cork, there's still things below that that I don't know. There's still parts about reality of this desk that I do not know, whereas the, uh, the truth value of a proposition is in a different category. Is it objectively is it objectively true that it's in a different category? Again, we have to go to the fact that we're dealing with propositions. Propositions mm -hmm. are not the same thing as the ontological nature of reality. These are things that we have built up in ourselves in our own uh, conversations. For instance, is it ontologically true that Superman can fly? as an example. Well, no, but within the reality that's been built around the character of Superman, yes. So is it ontologically true that uh, pragmatism says A or B? Well, no, there's no ontological value to it. But within the framework of pragmatism, then we can make that statement. Is it objectively true that within the framework of pragmatism, we can make those statements? You can dial this back a thousand times. The answer is going that, to be the that's same. That's right. And I, and I would but it's the point because is, the, I, because I the game because well I, don't don't apologize because i understand what the what the the game here is and i'm not saying that you're gaming me i don't worry about it you don't have the, to you don't have to just i understand you're a nice enough guy i understand we're, we're just having a conversation. um but this is base this is basically um a hyper application of the socratic method I, i'm really not thinking along those terms i'm just thinking of trying to um, consistently apply a pragmatic outlook. On the one hand, we can't know objective reality, yet you're making statements when you make reference to, so, to scientific so studies or anything like that. Um, I'd see, it seems to me that that's inconsistent with a pragmatic approach. If we can't know so objective reality, the, then you can't really make any statements that so reflect reality um, unless you're just saying they're, they're just useful, which you go into so infinite here's regress. The thing. That's why I keep asking. When you, when you go into this infinite regress, when you start getting to the point of infinite regress, um, mm -hmm. that's usually where pragmatism will stop because an infinite regress does not have utility. It does not have explanatory power. It lacks utility. Um, for instance, when we are talking about, I understand you think you've got me in a gotcha. I see that look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to ask a question there. Uh, it, when you said that, when you said that an infinite regress has no utility, well, it does have utility if by pointing that you're stuck in an infinite regress, it shows the futility of that view as being uh, a sufficient epistemological perspective that can ground knowledge and, and everything else within one's worldview. That, mm. that's, that's the utility of going through the infinite regress, not like what some presuppositionalists say, well, how do you know that's true? How do you know that's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to do that as kind of a, a got you. I'm trying to consistently apply on that perspective 
that is a problem. The infinite regress is a problem within pragmatism, which, as I perceive it, makes it an insufficient epistemological uh, position to hold as a grounding for knowledge. So, so if, mm -hmm. on your view, we can't have knowledge, and you can correct me if you do believe in some way we can, then my original argument is true that the, the non-Christian position, your specific version of it, does not have the preconditions for knowledge, given the truth of your own perspective. Under pragmatism, it would also be argued that nobody has the preconditions for knowledge. It's not just that the pragmatist, yeah, it's not just that the pragmatist does not have this ability. It's that everybody lacks the ability to do this. Under, um, for instance, one of the things that was brought up uh, was as long as something has utility, we we keep it. Um, and there seems to be issues with that. But as an example, uh, you are speaking to me through a microphone that is currently connected to an iPad that is currently being ran by a logical processor. And that logical processor is a direct result of pragmatic thinking, regardless of the ontological value of anything in that. No, actually, historically, that's true. Check well, it out. I, I, I want to well, go back processors to were actually originally invented by pragmatists. That, that, I, I'm not that's that's you. fine. I, what I'm getting at is when you say that we can't, uh, you know, you're saying that in the pragmatic approach, this is everyone's in this position. Again, given pragmatism, you're not in a place to know that this is everyone's situation. Again, you're making statements that go beyond what pragmatism allows. If you're a pragmatist and we can't have objective no, reality, pragmatism how can you make pragmatism how, is second, an epistemology? Second, it's, my, it's still my time, so I just want to ask answer, ask this question: On a pragmatic mm. epistemology, how can you make the sweeping statement that everyone is in the same position? That just begs the question in favor of 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 your position. We can't know reality, so how can you know what it, what other people are able to do in regards to epistemological issues? That's my question. So the answer to that would be as far as pragmatism is concerned mm -hmm. it is it is useful to be able to make the statement that it seems to be the case that everybody's stuck in the same boat but it is also equally useless to operate under the condition that nobody can perceive reality and again you're you're dealing with an epistemology which is about personal theories of truth personal theories and beliefs and trying to juxtapose that to ontology, which is about the the case of things ontologically in the world. I would All say right, that everything that, that we do right, in the worldview necessarily, Eli, that's, necessarily that's time right there. That's time I'm right sorry? there. That's time right there. Okay. Okay. All, All right. Thanks, so Chris. now, uh, go ahead, Chris. You... This, there's not that much time to answer and go back and forth. So thank you. Right, yeah, no ten, ten minutes is small, but that's fine. <laughs> All right, Chris, you have ten minutes to go for it. Sure thing. Um, I'm actually going back on my on my notes here. Um, so when you say that an argument is transcendental, uh, transcendental arguments argue uh, what must be the case in order for something else to be the case. Um, mm -hmm. Is that not a a type of misapplication uh, of the principle of entailment, um, where if you say one thing must be the case for another thing to be the case? Um, do you have a way of actually demonstrating that that is, again, the case at that point? Yeah, when I deal with uh, issues of transcendental argumentation, it asks, what are the preconditions? In other words, mm -hmm. uh, there are things that must be true in order for us to have this conversation. Uh, for example, logic must be applicable, universal principles, for, in order for us to even have a coherent conversation. Now, if one wants to, you know, someone says, well, I don't believe in logic. Demonstrate it for me. The very denial of logic. That person's going to make me angry. <laughs> 
You, well, yes, that, that's true. And you'd be surprised. I've actually heard people who actually do deny logic. But the point still goes that to deny logic, you've actually demonstrated it. Why? Because transcendental arguments are proven by the impossibility of the contrary. Deny them, and the person's position is reduced to absurdity, just like the person who would deny the existence of, of logic. So when we're talking mm -hmm. about transcendentals, they are proven by the impossibility of the contrary. Deny them, and you've demonstrated them. Affirm them, and you're still, you know, the point is made either way. That's why they're so important, because, you know... Does that, does that not sound somewhat circular to you, though? That, that literally makes it to where you have a position that has no ability to even be falsifiable. Well, uh, because the contrary is impossible. Right. So when we say uh, if something is uh, uh, necessarily true, then it's non-falsifiable. So I would say logic is necessarily true and by definition is unfalsifiable. Try to falsify it and you demonstrate its truth because you need to presuppose it in order to do that. You, you know, need if to I utilize to logic in order to that undermine logic. logic. Is, that logic is... Um, you know, invalid. You're going to have to give me an argument which presupposes logic, and then you'd be demonstrating the very point I'm making. Okay. Um, so when we're when we're dealing with the transcendental arguments, um, the issue that they this is not not an issue that they present, um, but in the questioning, you end up reducing the opponent's argument to an infinite regress or an ad infinitum. And then the, I would assume in your worldview, God is used as the terminator for that regress, correct? That is correct, yes. The, abil <laughs> the ability of God to terminate the infinite regress comes from omnipotence. Right, I would say or that just God, from his is existence. The, God is the stopping point. If you don't have a stopping point, then you run into the risk of an infinite regress, and you'll never be able to justify anything that's built upon, upon that, because you can't build something upon something without a foundation. Okay. So then my question is, if you're going to use God as a foundation there, and we're going to argue that he is, you would argue that he is self-evident, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, so on the proposition that God is sufficiently self-evident, um, do you not see how that causes a bit of a uniqueness problem? What do you mean by uniqueness problem? So the uniqueness problem comes down to um, he is unique in and of himself. Um, we have mm -hmm. no way of understanding without uh, extra means uh, that he exists because of his uniqueness. For instance, uh, I have no way of knowing that a tree, like if there's only one tree in existence, as an example, mm -hmm. I have no way of knowing that that tree exists unless I see that one tree. Otherwise, I have to have a reference point to find that one tree. This is the, the uniqueness principle. If only one thing, if only one of this thing exists and there's no way for us to compare it to any other thing that is like it because there's nothing like it, then we have to have some way of determining that it's there. So if God is self-evident, how do we actually establish that he's self-evident? It seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that we would need scripture in order to show that he is self-evident. But if we require scripture to understand that God is self-evident, then doesn't that now mean that he is no longer self-evident because we have required scripture in order to even get to a belief claim on God, who is supposedly right. self-evident. Right. That presupposes that knowledge of God is um, immediate, that we need to look and conclude, oh, look, there's God. If we grant mm -hmm. the Christian perspective, the knowledge of God is both immediate and immediate. We can know God by, if you're familiar with the verse, the heavens declares the glory of God, but also mm -hmm. knowledge of God is immediate in that man is creating the image of God. And so that very image, the very thinking process, makes man, in a sense, aware of God. Now, we get into some theological issues of—and um, and again, this part, this part gets 
you know, most uh, skeptics find this insulting, but the Christian position, as I said at the beginning, uh, teaches that in some way, if we can kind of work our way and discuss this issue of self-deception, in some way, all men know that God exists. Again, you don't have to agree with that, but that's the Christian position. And that knowledge of God mm-hmm. is actually innate. Scripture is more specific knowledge. And so we would just, we would make a distinction there between general revelation and special revelation. But general revelation includes not only knowledge of God immediately mediated through our observing, but it's also knowledge of God immediately in that the very fact that we're creating his image. Um, it's kind of like what John Calvin says that um, we cannot understand. Uh, when we understand ourselves, knowledge of God and knowledge of man is simultaneous. We can't know ourselves unless we, in some sense, know God. So it's an it's an immediate knowledge of God, not necessarily something that we draw a conclusion to. Okay, and then um, my next question would be: Do you view I, I I supposed earlier in one of my arguments uh, that you would view God as the the foundation of good, not as separate from good, as as Euthyphro would put? Is that right? The case? God God's nature, uh, the goodness reflects God's nature. So God is is good by the by the very definition of who He is. Can God do anything outside of his nature? No. Okay, so he is bound by his nature. That's just saying he just does what he does, yeah. Well, no, you said he cannot. Not he will not, he cannot. Right, God can't do something, God can't do something that is out of accord with who he is. So yeah, that's a biblical position. For example, the Bible says uh, that God can't lie. It would be logically impossible for a perfectly holy and good God to do that which is not uh, perfect and holy. So I would say that he acts consistently with who he is. To act outside of his nature would be a contradiction in terms. Okay. And as you, and um, as I'm sure you would understand, you probably heard some Christian apologists say this, and I'm in agreement, that God doesn't do the logically impossible. And I wouldn't say that that's a detriment to his omnipotence because the logically impossible is not a thing. It's just that I actually I agree with you on this. Uh, I actually have a video on my channel called "The Worst Arguments Against God," and the first one I bring up is the argument from the stone, basically saying, okay. "Please stop okay. using this argument; it's horrible." Okay. Well, oh, thank you. Well, that that would be my response. God does anything consistent with His nature, um, and uh, He doesn't do anything that's contrary to His nature. Doesn't do anything contrary to His nature. Okay. Um, and you would agree that He is omnipotent and all loving, correct? Uh, what do you mean by all loving? Uh, all loving, as I as I defined earlier, uh, that he has unconditional love uh, for his creation. He has agape love. I would say that God loves his creation, but there are different degrees within his love. He doesn't love everyone in precisely the same way. Okay. Is there a verse that you can reference to where he says that? Uh, yes. It's a deduction from Scripture. For example, we have uh, the idea of the hatred of God. In Psalm 5, it says, I hate the worker of iniquity. But then in another sense, there's a sense in which God does love the world, but that sense is qualified by those other statements which we tried in Scripture that we try to hold consistently. So there's a way okay, in which so it God is not. Is. So it's not unconditional love. Uh, well, I mean— Because there are conditions uh, that you've just set up. I'm sorry? Because there I are conditions set, and I qualifiers. Set up, I haven't set up any conditions. In, the Bible teaches in, com- that God, in conversation. In conversation, okay. you have set them up, not that they were set up by you okay. in particular, but within the conversation. Right. I would say that in the scriptures themselves, God himself differentiate, differentiates his love. You have explicit scriptures which talk about his specific and special love for his covenant people. You have scriptures that mm. talk about his general love for mankind, but it's not a kind of redemptive love. 
we talk about in theology, this idea of common grace. Uh, that's, that is an expression of a kind of love, but it's definitely not the same kind of love that God has for his elect. So there is differentiation within the Bible itself. And so since the Bible is my standard, the basis upon which I formulate these ideas, that's consistent within my perspective. If anyone tries okay. to define omnibenevolence in some way that's contrary to that, I would just say that such a conception would be contrary to my worldview and wouldn't apply to me. Okay. Um, then my next question would be, what is your view on hell? Eternal conscious torment. Eternal conscious torment. Right. But I understand that and Christians within the realm of orthodoxy hold to a wide range of views on that. This is this happens to be my view. So my view, I'm convinced yep. that this is uh, the correct way. But I have conversations with people about different and perspectives. That's why I didn't declare what your version of hell was when I was speaking sure. earlier. I recognize there's a uh, right. I recognize there's several versions of hell that have been posited. And a lot of them end up stemming from, for instance, the Apocalypse of Peter, uh, which was then mm -hmm. extrapolated into Dante's Inferno. And that gave us our, our very like southern baptisty version of hell um okay whereas the bible itself is somewhat vague in many of its passages when dealing with hell all right that's time that's time all right eli you have 10 minutes your final 10 minutes to cross exam chris okay um hmm, let me see here okay we talked about love you have a philosophical agnosticism so that's consistent with your pragmatism because you admitted that we can't no objective reality. Let me see where I would go from here. I mean, it's very difficult to to say. I, I guess I could ask. I'm still I'm still convinced that your position of, of pragmatism, within your worldview perspective, if it's true, you would you agree that within your worldview you don't have the preconditions to know objective reality, and so your view is skeptical about everything we really can't know anything in its in its reality just just perception so it sounds i'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the argument from the ass <laughs> i'm not and familiar I, with the argument from I, the th ass. Okay. this is this is actually a, this is actually an old greek argument i'm, I'm not i believe kidding. you i believe um, you <laughs> So the argument, the argument from the ass uh, states, this is, this is important for this. The argument from the ass is, a, is an argument against skepticism. Um, the ass as a donkey uh, is stuck between two uh, piles of feet. And the piles of feet are equidistant. They are equal sized. Um, so the, the donkey is skeptical on which one it should eat. Uh, the donkey basically cannot pull an ought from the is of the current situation, which is a giant problem that everybody has issues with. You can't pull an ought from an is in any, any situation. Um, because the donkey cannot figure out which uh, pile it should eat from, the donkey starves. Due to its skepticism and its inability to uh, know which side it needs to go, uh, the donkey mm -hmm. ends up dying. Um, so with pragmatism, there's a conversation where skepticism is concerned. So you do have a level of skepticism uh, towards essentially everything. Uh, if somebody tells me one thing that they believe or one thing they think is true, I will probably look it up without taking their word on it, which pisses a lot of my friends off. That's unfortunate for them. I'm sorry. Um, but in that skepticism, uh, pragmatism also holds that there is no utility in not taking a position. This is why I didn't begin this by taking a non-position, something that, again, thank you for, for having a modicum of respect for. Um, pragmatism would hold that there's no utility in taking that, that non-position or not actually acting. So pragmatically, the donkey would have to choose, regardless of there being a, a good or worse option, would have to choose one of the two sides. So yes, in that skepticism, we can't 
know something ontologically, but in pragmatism, we must still act because without action, there is no utility. Okay, but the but the story of the ass presupposes the objective reality that the ass exists. So you st if we can't know anything about objective reality, then my next question would be, do you know that you exist? Can you operate under beliefs alone? I'm sorry? You, Can you operate under beliefs? So I, I'm, just, I'm just asking the question, given your perspective, mm -hmm. if okay. we can't know objective reality, then can someone know objectively that they exist? If you can know objectively that you exist, then you can know some aspect of objective reality, which would refute the idea that we can't know objective reality. So you see what knowing I'm saying? An aspect, knowing an aspect about objective reality does not mean that you know objective reality. You've been able to pull an aspect of it from your perception, which has marginal utility. It, uh, it may be closer in proximity to the ontological truth of the matter, um, but it does not necessitate uh, that you have actually gotten close enough to perceive the ontological truth of the matter. My position is that one can operate entirely on belief alone. Those beliefs can lead them to knowledge, possibly, whether they know that they actually have knowledge, uh, as much of a tautology as that statement is, um, is a bit hard to perceive, but a being just in general can operate purely on belief especially but, if they have to make action. But you did say just then that we can move closer to the ontology. But how would you know we would be moving closer to the ontology since we can't know, on your view, uh, you, have, you have no reality. way of knowing, but it doesn't matter. I'm sorry? You have no way of knowing, but it doesn't matter. For instance, um, if I am closer to what the ontological value of graphite is, what it actually is in general. Um, that neither helps nor hinders, and in many cases it may hinder because it will throw me into the problem of the ass of uh, unfettered skepticism, essentially. Um, I have no way of knowing the ontological value of every single facet of the chemical makeup of this graphite, but I recognize uh, that this graphite has utility. It can be used to write. It can be used for several other experiments that can be used in other instances. So you don't, you don't keep going and hit that infinite regress. You go until you get to the point where, okay, this has now become absurd. If you get to the point where it feels like it's becoming absurd, then there's no reason to continue forward at that point. This is why right. pragmatism is commonly used as a, as a uh, as an answer to solipsism. Right, and I don't think it's a good argument because my point is that pragmatism does reduce to absurdity since on the one hand you're positing pragmatism, but then you make claims that are look like knowledge claims, but then you have to admit that's not knowledge. Your worldview seems to not be able to provide the preconditions for knowledge. I mean, even by saying, well, we could only just know perception, that's a knowledge claim. And, and you say, well, I don't, know if the, I don't know if that's objectively true. Well, that's a knowledge claim. I don't see how you could avoid the infinite regress. If infinite regression is absurdity, then I would say that that's, that's what seems, uh, that seems that your worldview goes down that route. That's why I'm kind of, uh, I'm trying my best to understand what you're saying, but it seems as though you're proving my point in my initial argument that to reject a worldview that has the foundation that I'm suggesting the position is reduced to absurdity. If your position mm -hmm. is pragmatism, you got the infinite regress. If your position is empiricism, you got problems there. If your position is rationalism, there's problems there. So I tried mm -hmm. to, I put those out as red meat just to, <laughs> and I'm glad you you clarified, you know, you didn't take any of those. You said, well, I'm a pragmatist. And that helps narrow things down. But it seems that that position, um, really, you can't make any certain claims about anything. Even, 
that pragmatism is something useful because that's a, that's an objective knowledge claim. How would you respond to that? Uh, my response to that would be we look at what uh, we would have to look at what the fruits of that particular epistemology are. Uh, so under pragmatism, under pragmatic thought, uh, we have. As an example, I, I hate the word scientism and I hate people who adhere to science being the end all be all to everything. I can't stand <laughs> that. Sci science doesn't get you to ethics as an example. There's a reason right. we okay. have a separate category for ethics of science. Um, but under pragmatism, we can see things like philosophy of science, instrument, uh, instrumentalism, and we can see these things and we can determine their utility. So how do we determine the utility of say alchemy versus science? Well, we look at its fruits. Well, how do we determine the utility of pragmatism versus, say, solipsism? Well, we look at its fruits. If solipsism uh, naturally would beget somebody who operates as if they are the only living being on the planet and everything else is a manifestation of their mind in hard solipsism, um, the type of person that is begot from that largely doesn't have any utility behind anything they do. They don't have a reason to do anything for anybody else except, say, feed themselves because they're the only one they can even figure that exists. But even right, then, the food that they're consuming might not exist. Under pragmatism, though, you still have to actually go into action. So the fruits of pragmatism end up outweighing the fruits of something like solipsism. Right, but the fruit is not something that is known objectively. It's a perception of what that fruit is. And so we can have sure. skepticism literally about everything that we perceive to be the fruit and utility of something. You're Again, yeah. you, I, we... Right. And so that position would destroy the possibility of knowing anything at all. And there's nothing wrong with that. A being can operate entirely on beliefs. Do you know that to be true? I believe it to be true, and I can operate on that. Right. But you see the infinite regress. I could ask you, do you know that you believe that to be true? It's going to keep going back you, because that's the nature. Can you of explain the what the problem of an infinite regress is? I'm sorry? Can you explain what the actual issue of an infinite regress is? Right. I if I were to say, one. why do you believe, you know, A... And you say, well, because of this. And I was like, why do you believe that? Because of this. Why do you believe that? Because of this. And you continue to go ad infinitum, then you have never justified how you actually know the initial, the initial, the initial thing. Infinite regression will destroy the possibility of understanding anything because you could never have a justification, uh, a stopping point that actually grounds that. You'd go on forever and never know anything, which it's, if that's true, that position is reduced to absurdity since you'd have to say, on that view, okay, we can't know anything. But if you can't know anything, how do we know we can't know anything? That position is self-refuting. And so I would see that position as, as an absurd position, unless you have some kind of stopping point that can ground those beliefs and give a proper justification for them. That I, And I think the Christian worldview can do that. See, I don't necessarily see there's being an issue with not having right, a stopping that point. Is, that's time right there for Eli's 10 minutes, final 10 minutes. All right, uh, Chris, you now can questions Eli for your final 10 minutes. Sure. Um, so for my final 10 minutes, uh, I want to get into the concept of hell for a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So you brought, up, you brought up that your version of hell is eternal conscious torture. So this is something that a being would be able to perceive till the end of time. And mm -hmm. what is your definition of torture that you're using for this? Um, I don't know. The description of hell is uh, where the difficulty comes for me. I know people have different uh, ideas of what hell actually entails. Uh, to be quite honest, based on my own study, I'm not sure uh, what in what way the people suffer. I know one aspect of the suffering is being eternally separated from God. And so, uh, you know, that is going to be a part of it. But in regards to the details, I'm not so sure. And that's 
a conversation that I'd like to have uh, with my fellow Christians to kind of explore that a little more. Okay, but you do view it as suffering of a nature, correct? Oh, yes, yes, very much so. Okay. All right, then it doesn't actually matter. Uh, I would argue that it doesn't matter then what type of suffering it is. Because regardless of if the suffering is burning forever or being tickled forever or having a <laughs> or having a graphite or having a graphite pencil slowly pushed into your ear but never quite penetrating all the way through forever, these are all forms of suffering unless somebody's got a weird kink that I'm not entirely certain of and would maybe question. Um, so my position would be that it doesn't matter what type of torture it is or what type of suffering, all suffering is equal if it's infinite, because there's not going to be any difference between one type of suffering or another if they're infinite, just like all type I would, of happiness. I would disagree with you would that. Disagree. I would disagree with that. So, for can, example— You can see a functional uh, difference if, between suffering if it's infinite. Well, uh, I would argue that there may be some indication within the Bible that discusses different degrees of punishment, so that people in hell are all punished, but there are different degrees— now, what does that look like? I don't know. Only God knows the degree and the degree that's appropriate for uh, for the person. But um, I don't I don't see that that's necessarily the case. That it's just all the same. So the reason I, the reason I say that it's all the same um, for a finite amount of time, we 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 perceive any type of suffering that we have based on the degree of suffering that we have and the length of time we have in that type of suffering, which will increase the degree of suffering. For instance, um, if you're familiar, I'm not sure how familiar you, you are with like old school military torture methods, but many have, of them. I have gandered in the encyclopedia of torture. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. There, I don't, there's actually an encyclopedia that goes into different torture methods throughout history. So I have, I have dabbled a little bit out of curiosity, but go ahead. Okay. Um, so what we find when we look at torture methods that have been used throughout history, many torture methods and some of the most uh, psychologically damaging ones are ones that we would consider mundane if they were done for a short period of time. For instance, dripping water on somebody's forehead for a, an amount of time while they're strapped down. This is considered a relatively mundane thing to endure for even 10 minutes. Um, however, when we extend this torture to a long amount of time, for instance, uh, an hour, a day, uh, a handful of days, we find that the torture actually gets magnified greatly to the point where it is equivalent to, if not worse than, other types of more violent, brutal torture. So my position is that if someone is suffering, if that suffering is infinite, all suffering eventually will reach a point where it is indistinguishable in the amount of totalage as it is, I would say torture, actually, uh, you used conscious torture, this is fine. Any type of torture of any kind will result in the same amount of suffering if the amount of time allowed is infinite, because there is no end point. They will all reach the same point and continue on past that point infinitely. Well, I mean, you're saying all these things. Uh, that's I'm not committed to those understandings from my worldview. And if you're saying that from your worldview, you're not even sure that that's objectively true, since within your worldview, you can't know that. You perceive that that's how things work and how these things would have various logical entailments. I, I'm not obligated within mm -hmm. my worldview to understand the things the way you've just described them. Okay, and that's fine that you're not obligated to. Um, so then my next question would be, do you view God as all good? Any, any action that he takes would be good. Yes. Okay. And so you view him, do you view that there are people who are predestined uh, to go to hell? They are born and they will be going to hell, period. They are simply not elect. They are reprobate. 
Yes. Okay. And do you view that as, as just, that these people were born never having a chance to actually be saved? Well, we're going to have to get into some theological weeds there, which is fine uh, if we were, you know, discussing theology as an entire conversation. I wouldn't want to imagine to get into the details of that here. However, well, it was a yes, no read, question. If if I'm sorry. Well, it was a yes, no question. Do okay. you view, do you view uh, well, it as just? Well, it's yes or no questions can be pretty tricky because I'd want to qualify certain things. But if you're asking within my worldview and you're asking, mm. is something fair? Even if I didn't know how it would be fair, if I were to say it's fair, um, which I think it is since God always does good, it is a good thing. Even if I wouldn't be able to explain to you the details of all that, um, my worldview does not require me to go into the details and explain it. My worldview uh, provides, uh, it, my worldview uh, within it is that everything that God does is good. Now, if I can't explain, well, how is this good? That's irrelevant to me having uh, or God having a sufficient reason, a good reason for why he's doing those things. So there, there's okay. no inconsistency within my own perspective. Uh, yeah. If if so, I wanted if to God you on predestines a thing that you people did to hell. It's a good thing. And it's just because God did it. God doesn't do anything not just. And so it would logically follow that it is just. Now, if you were to re respond with a question, but what about? Those are interesting in-house theological issues, but given the truth of my worldview, it would be just, and so there wouldn't be a logical problem there. Okay, so there's two questions I want to ask on that. Okay. The first one is, you, do you recognize that you accidentally equivocated there? Maybe, but I'd be happy. I mean, I'm not perfect. I okay. would love for you to clarify. So, um, so I used the word just, and you okay. swapped to the word fair. Are you? I'm. I'm fairly yes. certain that you're using yes. these interchangeably. I did, to answer your question, I did recognize that I that I equivocated. So yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so you recognize that just refers to an action that's justified under its particular circumstances. Um, it can also be defined as a suspension of mercy. Um, fair refers to an action that treats people as they deserve to be treated. Many times actions are are just, but they are simply not fair. Many times actions are fair, but there is no justice in their fairness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so swapping so these words so thanks, put you in a weird So thank place. you. I did, I did equivocate. So kind of just responding and thinking off the top of my head. Um, I would say that everything God does uh, in regards to exercising his justice, he is right in doing so. And it is truly the just thing to do, whatever he does. Okay. Um, so then we recognize that under that worldview, uh, should he elect, I, I know you're a father, um, should mm -hmm. he elect to take one of your children and say that they are not elect, uh, they are doomed to suffer for eternity, and there's nothing that you or anyone else can do about it, no matter how hard they try, you see that as a, as a just action? Well, I would say that God is free to elect anyone he pleases, and so what I think is irrelevant to whether that's just or not. Now, we do make a distinction within Reformed theology between God's decrees and secondary causes and things like that, and so we do not believe within our worldview that our actions don't matter. Now, we could get into the intricacies of those things, and then we'll just be opening up theological issues, which is fine, but given my worldview, um, mm -hmm. God is free to predestine anyone. Um, and he is free to send everyone to hell if he wants, and he's free to send everyone to heaven, and he has the freedom to do that. It's, it's irrelevant what I think. God so, can predestine and, my children from before the foundation of the world to go to hell if he sees fit. Okay. 
and you are perfectly fine worshiping this god that would condemn your children to eternal punishment and well, not within, give them a choice in within the my within my worldview it, i don't understand the things in the simplistic way that we just kind of uh, did that exchange within my worldview mm -hmm. i agree that god is just he has morally sufficient reasons for uh, what he allows and on what he does, you know, whatever, what he permits, what he causes. And I would say that in order for me to say that that's wrong, I'd have to presuppose something inconsistent with my worldview, namely an external standard of good that I perceive God not to be uh, acting in accord with. Now, I do believe okay. that when God created, uh, when God saved me, um, the Bible teaches that my actions do matter in some way. Um, and so I do uh, bring my children up uh, in the admonition of the Lord. Um, and the Bible says that God uh, ordains not only the ends, but the means. And so I see my actions as very important. So it's not this issue of, well, God, you know, could have predestined my children to hell. So how could you worship a God like that? Well, it's more complex than that. And if you read some of the Christian creeds, we go into some of the details of the relationship between God's sovereign decrees and uh, human actions and, and their importance. All right. All right. That is the end of the cross-examination portion of this debate. Um, with that, I do have two questions, if you guys don't mind, um, sort of like a little Q and A, if you will. Um, so the first question is for Eli, um, like a lot of, uh, a lot of arguments from the pessimist, the skeptical world, the skeptical position has to do with the moral standing, question the morality of God, right? So the understanding is if God is all loving if god is all loving he's holy why not just wipe out evil altogether what is the what's the purpose of for example allowing someone to be raped something like that yeah and i, and uh, I picked the most extreme that. i picked the most extreme one because that's typically oh, yeah. where they rape go. and you know uh, all that stuff it's you know torturing babies for fun this is the kinds of stuff we need to talk about because mm -hmm. i think the 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 most intense examples bring out the point i think and that's why i think people you know talk about these things. Um, we have to understand that my inability to know God's morally sufficient reason for allowing something is irrelevant uh, to the fact that God has morally sufficient reason to do so. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord and those that he's revealed belong to us and our children's children. So within the Christian worldview, it's consistent for me to not necessarily know why God does certain things. But because God has also revealed his goodness, there is su sufficient ground within Scripture itself that I can trust that those areas of life that I don't understand, God does, in fact, have morally sufficient reasons for uh, for allowing them. Um, so uh, when you say, why did God allow a rape or a murder? Um, I don't my inability to know God's reason is irrelevant to the fact that God has morally sufficient reasons. He may tell us there might be instances in Scripture where he explains why a specific evil occurred. And then there are instances where he doesn't explain. Within my worldview, God's not obligated to explain. I'm just happy that when certain bad things happen, he does explain some of it. <laughs> so uh, so that's not an issue in terms of the truth of my perspective. There's no logical incoherency within my perspective. My perspective grants that I won't know always God's morally sufficient reasons. Okay. Uh, Chris, you, wanna, you, wanna, you got thoughts on that? Uh, only one thought. I just find it very interesting uh, that my interlocutor's position for better or worse is that it's perfectly okay uh when rape happens because god has a reason for it to happen <laughs> that's not what i said but okay <laughs> well that's the principle of entailment 
God well, has a plan. That, Everything now happens you're within his plan. How you understand those issues onto my perspective within my worldview, um, it would be inappropriate for me to say that God is okay with rape. Just because God permits evil doesn't mean that He's okay with it. God permits certain things, and He is accomplishing purposes. But not everything that He permits, He's okay with. But He definitely has purposes for why why it's allowed. And of course, God will one day, within the Christian perspective, judge uh, people for their sinful actions. So. But he won't I, I think that would be a straw man to, under, to understand my position as it's okay for someone to be raped. Okay. Uh, Chris, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you mentioned, you, you spoke about God's agape love, uh, his unconditional love. Um, mm -hmm. Is it right? That if, okay, so this is, okay, so I'm going to sort of lead into the question a little bit. If if we have a God, right, we, we have a God who's all loving, all powerful, and he's just in his actions. Um, is not he allowed to show wrath in that in that same in the same way that he shows love, or is it just that we look at the agape love and we say, well, the agape love wouldn't allow this. The agape love wouldn't send anybody to hell. You know, is he not allowed? Just like we do as you know, as parents. I'm not sure if you have children, Chris, but um, as we do as parents, there is a time where we love our children. But there is also a time where we have to discipline them. We have to put okay. them on punishment and so forth. Um, do you not think that an almighty God, an all-just God, has the right to love and also um, lay, down the, lay down the hammer, if you will? So there's a couple answers to this. Uh, the first one, we have to deal with what types of wrath are enacted uh, in the here and now. And then what types of wrath are enacted in the afterlife? If we're talking about the here and now, we run into the issue of we're, we're seeing God essentially as a parent who's using uh, punitive action uh, as, a, as a teaching mechanism. Would you say that that's somewhat correct? Sure. Okay. So when punitive action is used as a teaching mechanism, there's a lesson to be learned at the end. So when you, and when you use punitive action as a parent, you typically communicate why something happened. For instance, uh, your child steals something from the grocery store. Um, you find out, you spank them, you let them know that, hey, just so you know, what I did to you right now uh, was infinitely less bad than what would happen to you in the penile system. Uh, I'm letting you know right now that the action that you did was wrong. You need to take that back to the store and you use it as a teaching method. The purpose of punitive action here is to teach. When we're dealing with God's wrath on earth, it's very hard for many of those actions to be seen as teaching mechanisms because there is not the follow-up from the parent that, hey, the reason I did this is this. It's up to the person's perception here. We don't ask children to figure, we don't spank a child and then basically just say, uh, you know what you did and you know why it's wrong. We can't do that until we've actually sat down and explained that to the child. Secondly, if we're dealing with the issue of the afterlife, I view the punitive action of God at this point, again, depending on which version of hell you're using, uh, as largely useless, because if we're going to view punitive action as a method of teaching someone a, a lesson, there is no lesson to be learned once you're in hell, because if you're there, it doesn't matter if you learn your lesson or not. There's nothing you can do with it at that point. You can't then take that lesson and be a better person. You can't use that in any other in other any other area. So it seems to me that when we're dealing with hell, the afterlife punishment, we have punishment for punishment's sake. And I view neither of those, the punishment without communication and the punishment for punishment's sake, I don't view any of those as congruent with the type of punishment we would use on our children as a parent for teaching purposes. Okay. Eli, what you got to say? 
Yeah, I wouldn't equate uh, God's wrath necessarily with how it was just expressed there. Um, and basically, you're asking the question, uh, Chris, from your perspective, wouldn't God have a right uh, to do, you know, to punish and bring down the hammer? Again, he's going to have to answer that in two ways, either from his own worldview perspective or from within the Christian worldview perspective. If he's answering within the Christian worldview perspective, then he's going to have to grant the truth of the perspective and on its own terms answer that question, which I don't think he did. If he's answering it from his own perspective, then there's the problem of his pragmatic epistemology. If we can't know objective reality, how does he know the objective truth of everything he just said? If he admits that he doesn't know those things to be true, then he really hasn't said anything. If he says he can know those things to be true and how we're to understand wrath, uh, then his view is false since he's claiming to have objective knowledge as to those categories that he's just delineated between and re regarding the different kinds of wrath and punishment and correction and lessons to be learned. Okay, okay. Well, you guys are in luck. I only got two questions for you. So, <laughs> Fair. Well, you guys... this was an enjoyable discussion. Okay, same good. here. Same here. Right. And I really appreciate. I don't know if we're done, if we're doing closing statements or whatever. But just to say beforehand, I'm, I'm not saying this superficially. I, I really did enjoy this conversation. I find you to be a respectful debate partner. Excellent. I find you to be the same. Excellent. Excellent. I... I'll transition to, you know, if you guys want to say something in closing, uh, go ahead and give you guys a chance to close, and then we'll close this, close this debate out. We'll close the show out. All right, Eli, I'm going to go ahead and allow you to go ahead and uh, give uh, some closing remarks. All right, well, just to summarize, my argument at the beginning was that the Christian worldview provides the necessary preconditions for intelligibility. All non-Christian perspectives lack that foundation. The non-Christian perspectives either are internally incoherent or undermine uh, human, um, let me see if I, if I can find the specific words, they undermine human reasoning and experience. And I think, um, given the pragmatic approach, I think we see that once you grant the uh, hypothetical truth of pragmatism, human reasoning and experience is in fact undermined, since you can't make any objective uh, statements about reality, yet... On the one hand, I think the pragmatist does uh, run amok and does make um, these statements about objective reality. So you have to actually presuppose, uh, you know, the opposite of what you're actually what, what you're actually saying. So on the one hand, we can't know everything or anything objectively. And on the other hand, there are statements being made that presuppose that we can know certain things um, objectively. And so I think that that is a detriment to the pragmatist uh, perspective. Um, now, again, we didn't get to hash out the. Um, details of my own worldview uh, as it's uh, as it being transcendentally necessary. Um, again, that's probably due to the uh, the time uh, frames and just the way the discussion flowed. But I do believe that the Christian worldview, its benefit is that it is true in a transcendental sense. Deny its metaphysic, its epistemology, and its worldview framework, and the position is reduced to absurdity. Now, of course, we didn't have time to go into the details of other worldview perspectives, but hopefully, I, I hope that in this discussion, it was demonstrated that pragmatism uh, doesn't have the legs to stand and build a coherent worldview foundation. That being said, and I'll close with this, uh, as I said before, I definitely appreciate Chris coming on um, and interacting in a respectful manner. And um, my prayer for him is that he continues to look at these things and and have discussions, which my prayer is that one day you will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ um, and have your sins forgiven and that, you know, um, that's my prayer for you. And I'm sure other people have said that, but I just want to share my heart there and wrap up my comments. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Eli, for those closing remarks. I appreciate it. All right, Chris, you got it. 
Uh, sure thing. Uh, my closing remarks would be, I still, obviously at the end of this, uh, remain unconvinced uh, that God is a thing, at least the Christian God is a thing. Um, I was for 18 years, uh, but that largely fell away. I've actually got videos on my channel dealing with that, but I'm not going to use this as an attempt to plug because my opponent did not use this as an attempt to plug. Um, so what I'll say is this. I do not find, still, that whether or not we can perceive the ontological nature of reality as terribly important as long as we can get close enough in approximation to garner utility. Again, this is, we know that science, as an example, gets us closer to an approximation of ontological truth because of the fruits of its efforts, whereas something like alchemy does not get us closer uh, to the ontological nature of truth because alchemy... <laughs> largely over the centuries never yielded any fruit um again that's not to say that everything boils down to science when we have arguments about morals and ethics science can tell us uh how perception has developed around those things but it can't necessarily give us any moral oughts to, to argue that it can as a is an ought from his problem um so at the end of the day the only thing i want to say is i enjoyed this discussion with eli and even though we come out at completely opposite ends of the spectrum uh, i do enjoy the fact that he was a respectful interlocutor because I've had many a debate where my interlocutor uh, was was certainly not that. So I did want to say that in closing. All right. Thank you once again. Both of you, thank you for a well-rounded discussion. I appreciate the effort that you guys took in order to prepare for this and just the, the openness and making your time available for something like this. Uh, you know, these open discussions where people are able to come together and actually hear each other. You know, and actually hear each other's arguments and be able to respond in a respectful, honorable manner is lacking in today's culture. So I really do appreciate it. And um, with that, I do want to bless both of you with gifts for coming on. So I will get with both of you after the show expires. I will get with both of you and I will uh, look for a contact or a, a place where I can send a gift. So uh, with that said, once again, thank both of you. I appreciate both of you. And uh, I'm going to close this show out and be on the lookout for more shows. I'm going to try to get y'all doing somebody else, man. I might do a part two with this, man. This was a great conversation, so I appreciate you both. Thank you. All right, all Thank right. You. No problem, oh. no problem. Wanted to say uh, real quick, Eli, if you're here, um, would you mind if in the group chat uh, between you and Marlon, I dropped the uh, worst arguments against God video that I did so you could give me your critique on that? The, uh, let me see if I, I'm not really familiar with this, so let me see. I don't even know how to get to the comments. See, I am. Uh, I'm, should I just be know. the Facebook conversation that we had. I just dropped it in there. Okay. All right. Thank you. I'll take a look and, uh, yeah. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. No problem. All right, All right fellas. See y'all soon, man. I'll pull this show out. <laughs> Take care. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you, Chris, for engaging. I appreciate it. No problem. All right. All right. Take care. All right. That is it, folks. The gospel truth, man. Hey, we, you know, I love these conversations. I love the fact that, you know, this, the, you know, the, the platform that God has blessed me with is being used in order to engage you know in order to engage those who do not agree with the christian perspective and in doing that you know it's done in a, in a manner that's 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 great that's awesome um and i just want to encourage all the christians out there 
You know, when you when you engage with those who disagree with your position, you need to do it in a, in a manner that's going to allow them to hear you. The the uh, condescending attitudes, the sarcasm, the emotional responses, all that does nothing. We need to be able to engage ourselves and represent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in a manner that he's called us to represent him. And um, once again, I just want to thank Eli and Chris for doing that. I want to thank these two individuals for coming on and doing a great job at, at, at arguing for their position. Uh, with that said, I do want to go into the gospel truth. Uh, you know, the gospel truth is Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And in 1 John 4, 9 through 10, it says, In this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ is the, is the appeasement. He is the appeasement for our sins, the ultimate sacrifice. He appeased the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to endure it. God calls us out our sins, we repent of our sins, and we are in the fold of Christ. So it's absolutely vitally important that we take this into strong consideration. If you are not a believer, take these words to strong consideration that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power unto salvation. Please take these words. These are very, very vital, important words. And the way this world is going now is it's very important that you grasp this. And we pray over here at the gospel truth that God will you know, give you repentance, will allow repentance, that the Holy Spirit will come in your heart, regenerate your heart, and change your heart. But with that said, I want to go ahead and rehash some of the shows that I have coming up. September 25th, I have Andrew Rapport versus Stephen Bonnell. Uh, and they'll be debating a secular humanist superior to Christianity. October 1st, 2019, I have another debate. Ricky Crony will be debating Miles Patrick. And they're going to be debating is obedience to the law required for salvation, um, the interpretation of Deuteronomy 28, and is Jesus God. October 5th, 2019, uh, Scarlett Clay versus Gina Belk, our first female debate. Uh, the, the topic will be, are Christians epistemologically justified to believe in God? And October 6th, Miles Kedison will be debating Taylor Gray, and they'll be debating, can atheism account for objective morality? So we have a whole slew of shows coming up. And, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm... I'm I, I do these debates, I do these debates, and I do these lessons, and uh, I do these interviews um, so that the gospel would be sent out, so that it would engage the culture that we live in. And in that, sometimes you need support, right? So if you could put on your heart, put in your prayer list, if it's on your heart to support this ministry, I would appreciate it. If God has put on your heart to support, you know, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash the gospel truth. And there is the Patreon page. But with that said, I don't want to spend too much time on that. But with that said, I am going to get out of here. And I want, once again, once again, once again, I want to thank Eli and Chris for coming on and engaging each other on this topic. And be on the lookout for these future shows coming up. May God bless you and may God keep you. Stay prayed up, read that word, and be fasting too. God bless you, keep you. May God keep you. Peace.
Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.